This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Philippians. He had flesh and bone like we. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says, you, you, you want to see the most wonderful demonstration of humility? Just look what Jesus did for us by going to the cross. He laid down his life. He considered our lives more important than his own. And he became obedient to the will of the Father. And he laid down his life for us on a cross. And he paid the price for our sins. That's a humbling and overwhelming thought if you allow it to sink down into your soul. The scope of the grace that God demonstrated through Jesus is unfathomable. Every single human who's ever lived, who's living now or ever will live, has access to His forgiveness, no matter how atrocious their sins are. What a thought. In today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you that God's forgiveness is for you, Jesus would have gone to all that trouble just for you, and He wants you to trust in Him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Philippians chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The first four centuries of the early church The church spent a lot of time debating and discussing and even advancing heresies related to the identity of Jesus. For the first four centuries, there was a lot of debate, discussion, and even erroneous heretical thought about Jesus. So one of the uh, thoughts was that Jesus was only a man and they denied his divinity. And that is referred to as Unitarianism. And by the way, this is not just reserved for the first four centuries of church history. You will still find these heresies believed today. That there is this thought, and Unitarianism is the thought, that Jesus was only a man, that he was not God. He was a pretty powerful man. He did miraculous things but that he was not God. And so Unitarianism denies the divinity of Jesus and believes that he was only a man. Then there's the opposite extreme to that, uh, something called uh, Docetism. And Docetism is the teaching that Jesus was only God. And and they denied his humanity, uh, that he only had a phantom body, that he wasn't a body of flesh, but that it was just this uh, kind of illusion because he was only God and not, not human, okay? That's, that's, again, referred to as Docetism. Now, if you, for those of you who like these kind of things, uh, Gnosticism is another word that very closely related to Docetism, and they also believe that Jesus did not have a real physical body of flesh. And then there was this other kind of a hybrid view that Jesus was not both God and man, and they denied the integration of both natures. 
that he was fully God and fully man. They denied that, and so that's a, a, a heresy called Arianism. And by the way, Arianism is the father of modern Jehovah's Witness and um, Mormonism, because that's what Jehovah's Witness and Mormons believe about Jesus, that he was not fully God, not fully man, that he was a powerful supreme being, but that they deny his divinity and his humanity. So when you, when you have, you know, some guys in white shirts and black pants riding a bicycle knocking on your door and you talk to them about Jesus, they'll talk to you about Jesus. They, they will talk to you about Jesus, but you just need to know that their Jesus is a different Jesus from the Jesus that the Bible presents. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, but they do not believe that he is God in flesh. They do not believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. They deny the integration. Same thing is true for Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus, according to Jehovah's Witness, is the archangel Michael. And so they believe he was an angelic being who who took on form, but they deny that he was God and man completely integrated. And Arianism is the father of modern Jehovah's Witness thought and uh, practice and Mormonism thought and practice. So again, you have Unitarianism even today in in some circles. You have Docetism today in some circles. You have uh, Arianism in some circles today. It wasn't until the 5th century A.D., at the the Council of Chalcedon, which is in ancient Asia Minor, which is in modern Turkey, if you look at a map, around the 5th century AD, that the early church fathers got together, and they settled this once and for all, and they wrote out a rather lengthy statement, which I'm not going to read. I don't want to get your theological underwear in a knot, but I can tell you that it's rather, it's wordy, but it is clear about who Jesus is. I'll instead quote for you from the 20th century, uh, Graham Kendrick, who is a singer-songwriter, who kind of brought a summary to the Council of Chalcedon when he wrote this about Jesus. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. See, this is what Paul is going to write about here. That Jesus is God in flesh, that he is the integration of both divinity and humanity. Now, this is a a difficult, somewhat difficult concept for us to grasp. How is he both fully God and fully man? This is what the Bible teaches, and this is how Jesus presents himself, and this is how Scripture presents him. Uh, In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said to his disciples, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one, John 10.30. That Greek word one is hen, H-E-N, spelled just like a female chicken. And that word means one in essence and nature. So even Jesus makes the statement in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one in essence and nature. In John 14... Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and Philip, one of his disciples, you have to love love Philip. In in John 14, verse 8, Philip says to Jesus, why don't you just show us the Father, and that'll be enough? 
Just show us God and that'll be enough. And Jesus responds to Philip. He says, Philip, have I, have I not been with you this long and you would ask me, show me the Father? If you have seen me, this is John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So when we read here what we're about to read, please note that we're not reading about Jesus as only a man. We're not reading about Jesus as only God. We're reading about Jesus as the God-man. That he is that mediator between God and man. That's what 1 Timothy 2.5 says, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully man. And that's who Jesus is. And to believe him to be anything else is to deny his true identity. So Paul writes here in verse 5, your attitude, again, now the purpose of his writing this is, he wants us to be humble, so he's going to talk about the humility of Christ, but this is rich in theology too, so we're going, to, we're going to see both of that. He says here, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll come back. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." All right, let's back up now and understand this. He says in verse 6 that Jesus being, present tense, in very nature God, not was, not shall be, present tense, being in very nature God. Very nature in the Greek is the word morphe. Uh, We we get the English word to morph, but this literally in Greek means the essential attribute. So Jesus is in every way essentially God. In John 1, remember the prologue to to John's gospel? John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, Paul will write uh, over here in Colossians, just go over a couple of pages actually here to Colossians chapter 1, in, in verse 15, speaking there of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But there in verse 15 of Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Over in, I can, I'll read it probably before you'll, you'll turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 1, It tells us in verse 3 that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So that's what we're reading here back here in Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, he is in every way God, he has all the attributes of God because he is God. Listen, when Jesus comes onto the world scene, it's not like that was his beginning. He has always existed being co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, it's monotheistic, one God who reveals himself in three persons. 
And so Jesus is in very nature God, back here in Philippians 2 verse 6, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The New Living Translation says, though he was God, he did not demand or cling to his rights as God. Okay, so being in every way God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to, to, to hold on to. He was willing to, to lay this down. So verse 7, but made himself nothing. The word nothing literally means that he emptied himself. He divested himself. He made himself nothing. Now, what is it that he emptied himself of? So for those of you, again, taking notes, let me just park it here for just a moment, because what is it that Jesus gave up? What what did he empty himself of? What did he divest himself of? And the Bible actually tells us various things that Jesus gave up in order to, to condescend to our level and take on flesh to become like us, to die for us. And so several things in the Bible, I'm going to give you six. One of the things he divested himself of was his glory, because after he is crucified, uh, well, actually before he's crucified, but he, but he prays this prayer related to after he's crucified. He says in John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So one of the things he laid down when he came to earth was his glory. Also, number two, he laid down the treasures of heaven. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul wrote, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, Paul's not talking about material things there. He's talking about all the spiritual wealth, all the treasures of heaven, that when Jesus condescended to our level, he left all of the treasures and wonder and splendor and majesty of heaven divesting himself of the treasures of heaven. Number three, the Bible also tells us that that he laid down the independent exercise of his own will and authority. In John 5, 19, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus even added in John 12, 49, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. So he lays down the independent exercise of his will and authority in deference to the authority of his Father. Number four, we also learn from the Bible that he laid down the exercise of his omnipotence. We talked about omnipotence this past Sunday, the fact that God is all-powerful. Because in Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says, Do you not think that I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Remember when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's like, you know, I mean, I have the power to be able to call upon my Father. He can dispatch 12 legions of angels to rescue me, but I choose not to because... He laid down the exercise of his omnipotence. Number five, we also find that he laid down the exercise of his omniscience. God is all-knowing. But Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour related to Jesus' second coming. He says, not the angels, not even the Son, not even himself, but only the Father. And number six, scriptures tell us also that he laid down the favorable relationship with his Father at least for a small period of time, because remember from the cross in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when we read here in Philippians 2 that Jesus 
emptied himself or made himself nothing. There was a lot that he laid down. There was a lot that he divested himself of in order to condescend to our level. And then here in Philippians 2, verse 7, taking the very nature of a servant, that word servant, doulos, we talked about that last week, being made in human likeness is where he takes on flesh, he takes on humanity. Okay, look, when Jesus divests himself of all these various things, he doesn't do it by subtraction, he does it by addition. He doesn't lose his divinity, he, he doesn't lose the attributes of God, he, he adds the aspect of humanity, fully integrating divinity with humanity, taking on human likeness, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, because he looked like one of us, he had flesh and bone like we, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Paul says, you you, you want to see the most wonderful demonstration of humility? Just look what Jesus did for us by going to the cross. He laid down his life. He considered our lives more important than his own. And he became obedient to the will of the Father. And he laid down his life for us on a cross. And he paid the price for our sins. And therefore, verse 9, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, meaning the angels, and on earth, meaning all people, and under the earth, meaning even the dead. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, let me point out something here, because if you read this, you might at first glance think it means everybody's going to get saved. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Looks like everybody's going to get saved here. That's not what it means. Every knee shall bow. There's going to come a day when everyone on the planet, and even in the heavens, will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. When you make that acknowledgement before death, it is unto salvation. But if you make that acknowledgement, and all will at some point, if you make that acknowledgement after death, it is unto damnation. In other words, what Paul is writing here is this. When you bow your knee in humility to the Lordship of Jesus and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that you shall be saved. When you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Confessing Jesus before you die is unto salvation. But if you don't confess Jesus before you die, you will confess him afterwards. But it will be unto damnation. There will be such a revelation in the heart of every person alive or dead, who eventually confesses the name of Jesus, that you will even acknowledge that God is righteous in his condemnation of sinners. That's what he's saying here. He says, either you profess him as Lord before you die, and it'll be for your salvation, or you will confess him as Lord after you die, and it will be unto the recognition that God is just, in all his punishment and in all his judgment, even concerning you. So this is not this carte blanche statement that everybody's going to get saved, everybody's going to eventually... No, this is a statement that means you confess it before you die, it is unto salvation. 
or else you confess them after you die, and it will be unto damnation the recognition that God is just, even in his punishment of the wicked. That's what he's saying here. There will come a point when every single knee will bow. Look, news bulletin. It goes better for us if we bow our knee before we die. He is worthy of our praise. He is Lord of all. And he died and he sacrificed his life that we might have life. He gave of himself and emptied himself and took on flesh and became like us. Why did he have to become like us? Because in order to appease the wrath of God, which has to be exercised, because sin must be punished, a holy and righteous God cannot turn a blind eye to evil and wickedness and rebellion. So he has to exercise wrath. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. If there was a criminal who committed a horrible crime against a loved one of yours, and the judge just decided, you know what, I, I, I don't really care what they did, and, and, and I'm just going to turn a blind eye, you would be outraged, and rightly so, because you would want justice. You would want wrath for that person who harmed your loved one. Okay, so when we think of God, don't think, well, that's counterintuitive to a loving and holy God. No, no, no. He has to exercise his wrath and his justice against wickedness. Otherwise, he would not be a just and holy God. But God, knowing that his wrath has to be satisfied against the wickedness of humanity, and we're all sinners because the Bible says all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. God, knowing, because he knows all things, that his wrath has to be satisfied and knowing that there's not a single righteous person that could effectively stand in the gap on behalf of the rest of humanity, he said, I'll come myself and I'll wrap myself in humanity and I'll die for the sins of the world. The righteous died for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That through his sacrifice, the wrath of God was appeased. The punishment intended for us was placed on Jesus, even though he had done no sin, done no wrong. The punishment intended for every single one of us because of our sin was placed on Jesus. This is what God did on our behalf. He says, I'm going to place all of the punishment intended for me and for all of you and for the sins of the whole world. I'm going to put it on my son, Jesus, so that my wrath is satisfied. And now anyone who looks to the son, anyone who trusts Jesus for their personal forgiveness of sins shall be saved and shall be forgiven. And you can pass from death to life and not have to receive the punishment intended for us. Hell, listen, hell was created, is reserved for the devil and his fallen angels with him. God wants none to perish. God doesn't want anyone to go there. We go there because we reject the sacrifice of Christ. And if we do, there is therefore now no sacrifice for our sins, but only a swift condemnation. This is what Hebrews tells us. And so therefore, God put in place the sacrifice of his son saying, I love you so much that I'm willing to sacrifice my only begotten son for the sins of the world. If you will trust in my son, if you believe by faith that what he did is sufficient for all your sins, you shall have your sins forgiven and be able to go to heaven when you die. This is what Paul is writing about here. And this is a good place for us just to kind of look into our own hearts right now. Because if you don't know Christ as your Savior, there's no greater time like the present than to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection. 
as Pastor Gary Hamrick teaches through the book of Philippians. If you're interested in hearing this message again or others like it, feel free to visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. This is a great way to keep up with Pastor Gary's studies and to have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once there, simply look under the Teachings tab. You can also learn more about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be excited to meet you if you're in the area. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We trust you've been encouraged by today's teaching from the book of Philippians. Keep reading on your own to discover many other inspiring and motivating things that apply to you today. We look forward to you joining us on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know